Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Guy and I are joined by Chris Miller. Chris is the Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. He is also the author of a book that's been recommended to Guy, Danny, and myself on many occasions, which I am knee deep in. It's called Chip Wars, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Chris, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Guy, your good friend, Mike Mobison, I think it was late last year, told us we have to read this book. He recommended it to our listeners. And I got to tell you, it reads a lot, Chris. I don't know if you read Shoe Dog, which was the, the, the book about the creation of Nike and, and Phil Knight, because you take this really interesting historical perspective to the semiconductor industry. You take us all the way back during the 40s and, and you talk, it gets very technical, but I understand you are not a technologist, you are a historian and you've written books on the Russian economy over many different periods, and you have a book on Putinomics and, and the Putin economy. What led you as an academic, as a historian, to research this topic and write a book that actually reads, and, and if you read many of the reviews, and I'm, re I, I'm reading this book, and it is a page turner, it really does feel like it has the potential to be a movie at some point, to be very frank with you. The historical aspects are fascinating. The geopolitical aspects are fascinating, and it's just really topical. This book came out, I think, right after the CHIPS Act was signed and, and right before the advanced chip bans were put in place here. So talk to us a little bit about what drew you to this topic and why you think it's so relevant right here and right now. As you say, I'm an economic historian by training, and I first decided to write a book about semiconductors when I came to realize that you really can't understand the way the global economy works without them. First, I as Part of the, the study of where chips uh, emerge, I learned that the first chips were used in U.S. missile systems during the Cold War. And so there was a, a geopolitical aspect to the chip industry, but it's not just about uh, geopolitics. It's also about globalization because today uh, chips are one of the most widely traded goods and China spends as much money each year importing semiconductors as spends importing oil. So I realized that actually all of the key trends in the world today, the balance of military power, the structure of the world economy, it all depends on semiconductors, and yet we basically never think about them because we hardly ever see them. They're buried deep inside of our electronic devices. How dependent are we in the United States on other countries? Now, I know the answer is quite, but there's clearly a push to get facilities built here in the United States. Intel is doing it. The problem, of course, is it's billions of dollars, and typically it takes anywhere from five to 10 years to build these places. So in the interim, this is a huge geopolitical homeland security risk to the United States. That's right. And the challenge is that today, the world's most advanced chip maker is a company called TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which today has almost all of its production, including all of its most advanced production in Taiwan. 90% 
percent of the world's most advanced processors, the type of chip in your smartphone, in your computer, in the data centers that are training AI systems, they're all made in Taiwan. And so that means that the US and really the whole world is dependent on this one company continuing to produce the most advanced chips. So it's interesting, and I've said this and feel free to disagree, but you know, as much as Russia, Ukraine was about the reunification of the Soviet Union and all those things, it has much to do with that as it is controlling the global commodity markets. Dependence on Taiwan, to your point, I mean, it seems a foregone conclusion that obviously China has, I don't know, thoughts of somehow the reunification of Taiwan with China, which does not augur particularly well. And I don't think it's if, I think it's more of when. Am I onto something there? I think you're, you're certainly right that if you talk to U.S. policymakers, Pentagon officials, they're more worried than at any point in half a century that China might move on Taiwan. And they've gotten more worried over the past decade, just as the whole world has gotten progressively more dependent on ships made in Taiwan. I mean, that's the dilemma. Chris, you use the term in the book, the Taiwanization. A lot of folks want to focus on globalization or the diversification now of supply chains. Can you give us a little context, historically maybe, of the choke point that we have? You just talked about how all the advanced chips, talked a little bit about the market share that Taiwan Semi has. And really for their existence right now, we're seeing this and maybe it's a lot of lip service right now because they don't want to lose customers and the like here. They have to talk about diversifying to other places that are maybe less geopolitical hotspots as their homeland. Give us some context about when you talk about what percentage of grain was grown in, in Ukraine and in Russia and what that war meant for the disruption of that supply chain or natural gas flows to Europe. Like how much more important is this to the global economy than what we just experienced, let's say, over the last two years and, and the pressure points because of that geopolitical situation? The analogy I like to draw is with OPEC and oil. Saudi Arabia produces 10 or 15% of the world's oil. Taiwan produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. And I think TSMC is more important than a commodity producer like Saudi Arabia because chips aren't commodities. The semiconductors that TSMC produces often can't be produced by anyone else on the planet. And TSMC has around 50% of the world's market share in the production of chips for other companies. And so just to put what TSMC does in a bit of historical context, before this company was founded, almost all companies designed and manufactured chips in-house. But TSMC was created with a different business model. They wanted to be sort of like what Gutenberg was for books. They wanted to do that in semiconductors. They don't design any chips. They just produce them from other companies for Apple, for NVIDIA, for AMD. So all of the biggest companies in Silicon Valley are all hugely dependent, in some cases, uniquely dependent on TSMC to produce the chips that they rely on. So talk to us a bit about, let's say, an Apple, a Qualcomm, an AMD. These are all their biggest customers in a way. And so when we think about how supply chains in and around U.S. manufacturers of consumer electronics for decades now, they've just been oriented at least as far as chips in Taiwan, and you talk about the market share there, but then you talk about like iPhone cities that are made in, in, in China, and there's this steady flow of components, and there's a reason why these supply chains have been oriented around there, the cheap labor and, and, and the like here. How might it work if, let's just say, there's some sort of economic embargo of Taiwan, right? And there's a some sort of disconnect or disruption of the supply of chips, let's say, to manufacturing capabilities within China. What is that look like in your opinion? You did a lot of reporting. Obviously, you did a lot of research on, on, on this. Is this the sort of thing that would make the pandemic supply chain disruptions or the Ukrainian invasion disruption? Is it going to make it look like child's play? Because when you think about it, you detail just 
all of the just the devices. Each new car that rolls off an assembly line has thousand semiconductors in it. Or are we likely on the precipice of a major economic event if there is some, some sort of geopolitical dust up between China and Taiwan in the near future? I think the pandemic era uh, supply chain issues are a, a, a good frame for looking at just how catastrophic it would be. We, we all heard about chip shortages during the pandemic. Most people don't realize that global production of chips increased every year of the pandemic. We produced more chips in 2020 than in 2019, even more chips in 2021. We just didn't produce enough to deal with the surge in demand as everyone bought new PCs to prepare to work from home. And nevertheless, that caused hundreds of billions of dollars in disruption of manufacturing. The car industry alone is estimated to have lost almost half a trillion dollars in sales they couldn't complete because they couldn't get chips they needed for their cars. And so if you weren't able to access chips from Taiwan over a period of months, the entire manufacturing industry would grind to a halt, at least in the short run. It's not just that you wouldn't be able to buy a smartphone anywhere in the world, although you wouldn't be able to buy a smartphone anywhere in the world. It's also dishwashers and coffee makers and microwaves and cars and airplanes and manufacturing equipment. They all have dozens, hundreds, even thousands of chips inside, and a huge share of these chips are made in Taiwan. It's interesting. President Xi of China, they've banned, obviously, some American companies from being there successfully. And you point out in your book, what they were not able to do is, or maybe what he didn't see or anticipate was cornering, for lack of a better term, the chip market. And I think there's a struggle there. Again, it's the new oil, as you mentioned. If you can control the chip market, you effectively can control the global economy. So ex-Taiwan, what are China's interests or what are they doing in mainland China to sort of combat that? The, the challenge China faces is that it's actually a small player in the chip industry. By revenue share, China produces less than 10% of the world's chips. The US, Taiwan, Japan, Korea are all bigger players. And of the chips that China produces, most of them aren't very advanced. And when China produces chips, they do so using machines, software, chemicals that are imported from abroad, from the US, from Japan, from the Netherlands from Korea. So China is hugely reliant in this sphere. And that's why for almost the last decade, since 2014, under President Xi, China has been pouring tens of billions of dollars a year into trying to develop more self-sufficient capabilities, sort of like one chips act per year over the last decade. And they've made some progress, but they're still meaningfully behind. And if you compare China's leading capabilities to what TSMC can do in Taiwan, China's been about a half decade behind for the last decade. Every year, China improves a little bit, but every year TSMC improves a little bit too, and the gap remains more or less the same. So you're you're a historian, you're an economic historian, and if you think about the majority of wars over history have been either started for religious reasons or economic reasons. If you think about what you just said and is behind the eight ball as China is in terms of chips, and then layer upon that a youth unemployment rate or teen unemployment rate anywhere from 25 to 40%, depending on who you believe, in one, almost in one fell swoop. And I'm not praying for this, but I'm just, I'm trying to be a, st a student of history as well. They could sort of assuage or deal with both of those problems with an invasion of Taiwan. Am, am I reading too much into that? Or is that sort of how it plays itself out? Well, I think the challenge China faces is that the moment fighting starts, 
the supply chains that supply the chemicals, supply the spare parts, supply the software to TSMC shut down. Right. TSMC- now, I'm, I'm going to stop you for a second. I apologize. A hundred percent. And on the back of that, and we've seen this now, historically, they've done it more so over the last few years. The stockpiling of just about everything that's being taken place is in anticipation of what you just said. And I apologize for interrupting, but please continue. I think you're right to focus on the stockpiling, but I don't think China stockpiled anywhere near enough of what you'd need uh, to keep uh, Taiwanese facilities operative. And it's not just the equipment and materials, you also need the people. Uh, because the staff inside of TSMC's facilities have really unique knowledge that China can't simply transplant. And so I think we can safely assume that if fighting starts, the industry shuts down and doesn't turn back on again. I think the, the scenario I worry about is what if there's a blockade, sort of like the Cuban Missile Crisis, but in reverse. China stops ships from going into Taiwan and threatens to keep stopping ships unless Taiwan gives in. What would the U.S. do? Would we send in the Navy to break the blockade? Maybe, but I'm not so sure about that. What would it mean, let's just say, if that's like the least violent sort of way in which they basically start to, for all intents and purposes, shots across? the bow a a little bit, or at least indicate what their intentions are. At that point, when you think about the precedent that was set by U.S. multinationals when the Russians rolled into Ukraine in the beginning of 2022, Tim Cook, Elon Musk, they have to make some really hard decisions. Tim Cook set this course two decades ago, and he's the architect, right? Uh, If you think about it from like a a supply chain and logistics standpoint, for them to move, and and I know that they're moving manufacturing facilities um, in India and and Vietnam, and, and we'll see stuff closer to home, but that is all massively inflationary, right? If you think about it, and the sort of the cost of an iPhone goes from $1,000 possibly to $1,700, $1,800 or something like that. So if you just think about the disruption to some of the biggest manufacturers or, or consumer products companies around the globe, you are reversing 50 years of this sort of, you could call it unholy alliance that we've had with this cheap labor. So talk to us a little bit about that, because do you think a lot of these US multinationals are threading a needle right here? but it really feels like what we've experienced over the last three years from the pandemic and then all of these kind of geopolitical tensions that have been bubbling up, it seems like that we better start moving our feet a little bit or we're going to be left flat-footed. I think you're right that all the companies you mentioned are completely unprepared for a rapid shift. What they're hoping for is a shift that takes place over five years or a decade in which they can slowly build up production capacity outside of China and be in a better position when that day comes. And so if you look at Apple, they've been moving more rapidly than almost anyone expected, more rapidly than I think even they expected they'd be doing to open up new assembly lines in Vietnam and India. And and they're actually the laggard. If you look at other companies, PC producers like Dell or HP have been moving more rapidly to shift assembly out of China precisely uh, for this reason. If you look at server assembly, that's even shifted more rapidly than PC. So the entire electronics industry has woken up and is trying to reposition itself precisely to take account of these risks. The point I would make here about that is when you think about the reliance on access to their consumers by a Tesla, for instance, 50% of their new cars are being rolled out from Shanghai, the gigafactory there, and they are number four or three or four in market share. In this latest quarter that was just reported in Q3, as far as deliveries, BYD almost got within 3,000 cars. So when you think about our reliance on them, I'm I'm like, I'm really kind of worried. And then the other 
point I would say is that she and, and the regime, if they see these multinationals, these U.S. companies moving manufacturing away, don't they rely less on us? And, and therefore, it has the potential to really dial up, or at least if you think about how tense our situation right now is, I know there's a lot of optimism about the potential for a Biden-She sort of summit in the not so distant future. But if they are going to rely less on our companies using them for manufacturing, then they're going to further close access to their consumers. And it really just heightens the chances of them doing something or making a move on Taiwan. Yeah. And I think that's already happening. If you look at smartphones, for example, who's going to lose market share thanks to Huawei's new smartphone launch? Apple will. Who's losing out from BYD's rapid growth in China? Tesla is really challenged. And I think that's slowly actually having an impact on the way that US multinationals are thinking about the Chinese market. Because when it was a source of unending growth, they would do anything to keep access to it. But now many are beginning to realize that actually there are Chinese competitors that are going to steal their market share. And in that context, they're going to fight less hard to keep access to it and be more open to shifting their production to other geographies. I'm pretty certain that everybody in the Pentagon has read your book. If they didn't, they should. And if you think about the budget of the Pentagon, you think about the United States military, biggest and most well-funded military in the history of mankind. My sense is they've done things to sort of mitigate the risk that they face because of their reliance on chips. But maybe I'm off base here. So walk us through that in terms of just that lens, the US military. What are we looking at here? Here's a challenge the US military faces. They are a major buyer of high-end chips, but they're small volumes compared to Apple or to Qualcomm or to AMD. The US military basically invented the first semiconductors, but today only 2% of chips by volume go into the defense sector. And so Tim Cook has vastly more influence over the semiconductor supply chain than does Joe Biden. And that's the challenge the military faces, that they've got to buy leading edge chips, the most advanced chips wherever they're made. And for the US military today, that means Taiwan is a source of many advanced semiconductors. They don't like that fact, but there's no alternative. And the reason there's no alternative is because today a cutting edge ship plant costs twice as much as an aircraft carrier. So let's let's focus on the military here for, for a second. So when you think about the advanced chip bands, it, it really, and, and you mentioned Dell before, right? A lot of these consumer electronics companies are also, they sell into the government, right? So Dell, one of their biggest customers is probably the US government. And, and so when you think about the advanced chips that go into servers or go into military drones, this is really what this is all about right now, right? And so when you talk about how far the U.S. is, we're not that far, right, from the Chinese. If they really want to double down here and, and make some advances, like Guy just alluded to that, you said that Tim Cook is a lot more important in this equation right now because of, let's just say, the amount of chips that they're buying and the level of it. But does the military and our access to the manufacturing and Taiwan Semi, this is actually ultimately the more important point, isn't it? And so talk to us a little bit about how this is likely to play out here, because a lot of our companies can verticalize things, but our government, they're still going to be reliant on a lot of the capabilities over there. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and the U.S. military and all militaries around the world are trying to figure out how they can deploy AI and autonomous systems in their operations. And, and to do that, they need access to the exact same ships as everyone else, NVIDIA GPUs first and foremost. And NVIDIA's most advanced GPUs are made at TSMC. Right now, they can't be made anywhere else. And so that has meant that if you want to train a drone to fly autonomously, just like you want to train a car to drive autonomously, you are very likely to use NVIDIA's chips. And so long as TSMC remains at the cutting edge of chip manufacturing, GPU manufacturers are going to want to use their capabilities, which means that anyone who wants access to GPUs will be relying on chips made in Taiwan. I think we're fortunate 
that the answer to this question is they didn't pursue it. But if the Soviet Union, the then Soviet Union, had pursued advanced chips the way they pursued other things, would there still be a Soviet Union? I know you can't do the counterfactual, but you think about it, they were so behind the curve in that vertical that it makes you wonder what would have happened if they weren't. What they really got wrong was that they didn't have a consumer market to help drive progress forward. They only had a military market. The military market was small, whereas the U.S. was producing 10 and eventually almost 100 times as many chips for computers and then eventually for PCs and then more recently for smartphones. And that's what's been driving progress. It's Apple every year that buys the most advanced chips that TSMC can produce. And so unless you've got the consumer market, you can't compete. Challenge is that China has a consumer market, not as big as the rest of the world, but still pretty big, 20% of global GDP. And so China's got a real chance to compete. Chris, when you talk about that consumer market in China, like in, in Guy, I think reference this a little bit where the Chinese put a, a ban on iPhones for government workers and they have the potential to really influence their consumers. And there's Apple doesn't have number one smartphone market share in China. The, the, they are very loyal to local brands. Yes, Apple and Tesla are aspirational, but like they could really do a number on consumer sentiment towards our U.S. brands, especially if all of a sudden you start seeing hundreds of thousands of workers not making those products the way they had been in the years prior. Talk to us a little bit about that, because that's a huge difference between the example that you just talked about with Russia. It was also a very easy reason why U.S. multinationals could pull out of Russia when Russia invaded Ukraine. They were getting one or two percent of their sales in Russia, and maybe that was on the high end. I think you're right about Chinese brands growing in importance, but if you open up a Lenovo PC or a Xiaomi phone, what you'll find inside is lots of chips imported from abroad, often designed in the US, manufactured in Taiwan or Korea. And so today, most of the key chips and almost all Chinese smartphones, the new Huawei phone is an exception, uh, and basically all computers are designed and manufactured abroad. That might be beginning to change. The new Huawei phone is an exception, and Huawei is going to try to produce as many units of this phone as it can. And to the extent that China can produce chips that are as good or close enough to what Taiwan or Korea can produce, it's going to substitute out these imported components, use its own, and then it'll be in a position to completely cut out foreign firms from its market. Co-founder of Fairchild Semi, Gordon Moore, and I think also Intel, there's an observation, a law based on his name, Moore's Law. And my question is, and you can describe it a lot better than I, but does it still hold true in 2023 the same way it did 20, 30 years ago? Gordon Moore coined the, the concept of Moore's Law in 1965, and he had two definitions for what it meant. First was that the number of transistors per chip, which meant that computing power produced by each chip would double every couple of years. And that's basically remained in place. Once every two years, we get chips that are twice as capable. The second criteria he had was that the average cost per transistor would fall every year, which is why you can buy a phone for $1,000 that has as much computing capability as the biggest supercomputer in the world 50 years ago. That has unfortunately stopped. Around 2015, the cost of computing has stopped declining, and by some metrics, it's even actually increased slightly, which is a real problem because we're demanding more compute now, especially for AI, than ever before. And there are concerns that even our ability to shrink transistors and therefore to cram more of them on chips is going to come to a halt at 
some point over the next decade. We've got at least half a decade of shrinking to go beyond that. It's not certain how much longer it can continue. Back to the national security implications. So if the H-100 is the only chip in town, literally, or, or on the globe that can do the training of these models, whether they're for like consumer sort of applications or military applications and the like, and, and you say to yourself, for NVIDIA to get around those bans that were put in place, and they have made some, like, how does the national, like the, the national instance play into this. Jensen Wang is a Taiwanese, right, by birth. And when you think about there was a headline in Bloomberg just this week, key Taiwan tech firms helping Huawei with China chip plants. You know what I mean? I, I wonder, like, when you think about capitalism gets in the way of nationalism in, in some instances. And I just wonder if there's going to be more regulation around this, if it actually is shown. You've seen the numbers. You've seen what happened to NVIDIA's orders. Like, I suspect there was a lot of double and triple ordering, as many other have in front of these bans going into place, or there's a lot of stuff being traded on the gray market, or there's a whole host of these workarounds coming into place. But if the Taiwanese are helping the Chinese build the plant so Huawei can make further advancement in their chips and in their manufacturing of high-end smartphones and the like, and Jensen Wang, who's made hundreds of billions of dollars over the last year from himself. I, I think he's become one of the richest men in the world because of the you know uptake of these devices. If they're all willing to play in these gray areas, I wonder, is there a scenario where we don't actually have to have some huge geopolitical dust up because of the chokehold that the Taiwanese have on there? It just seems like maybe there's an opportunity for some sort of middle ground. I, I think you're right that chip companies have pushed their exports all the way to the limit of the law. But I think U.S. government officials, when they write the laws, they understand that if they set a threshold, companies will go all the way up to that threshold. That's to be expected. And they want U.S. firms selling into the Chinese market below that threshold. It's in our interest to sell as many chips as possible that we don't consider a security risk. That means that China is spending money funding our, our R&D processes. And so the question is just, where do you set that threshold? And that's been the debate in recent years. Threshold has been brought down as of last year. So H100s can't be sold into China. Some news reports are saying it might be brought down even further to further limit chips being sold into China. But I think the right way to think about what the US is trying to do is not to say it's going to be impossible to sell chips into China, but rather to say only at the high end uh, of AI training chips, are we going to impose these restrictions? Otherwise, the U.S. government still wants PC chips, smartphone chips, auto chips to be sold into China because that's China spending money buying our products. All right. So let's do the report card thing. October 7th is the one year anniversary of the sanctions against the Chinese, the Biden administration. A lot of people say that has not worked. So what is your sense? What's your grade? And what are some of your thoughts on those sanctions? So if you look at those restrictions, there were two big prongs. One was to restrict AI chips going to China. The second was to restrict chip making tools for from being sold from US firms going into China. On the AI chip restriction, I think it's clearly had an impact in shifting volumes that would have been sold to China to be sold to the US and instead have Chinese firms buy the lower threshold chip that NVIDIA has produced. That, that, that's clearly worked. On, on the chip machine tools, that's where there's more uncertainty. We don't exactly know what types of tools that were used to produce this new Huawei smartphone chip, but there's been a lot of suggestions from media reports that in fact, Huawei might have been able to access some of the tools that ought to have been restricted. And so I think we should expect that Washington's going to ratchet up the restrictions further and try to close some of the loopholes that Huawei and its partners may have been accessing.
All right, Chris, you're not a political scientist, but you're definitely a, a pretty brilliant historian and you've wrote, written a really important book here. And it's fascinated, not just technologists, but people in politics, people in markets and the like here. If you had to make a guess in 2024, would you think that there would be some sort of move on Taiwan, whether it starts with an economic blockade, maybe it's a, a military blockade, it could be lobbing some bombs at some manufacturing facilities alike. Based on all of your reporting and your sense of history. And it seems like you're now very close to the semiconductor industry, at least from some of the things that I think are most important to some of the changing dynamics. Just curious, do you think that like folks like Guy and me who are sitting there and trying to game this stuff out in the markets, do you think there's a strong likelihood that we do see some sort of provocation in 2024? Look, I don't think there's a reason that 2024 is the year you should be worried about as opposed to 2025 or 2026 or 2027. The challenge is that even if it's only a 5% chance a year or a 10% chance of year for the next couple of years, the magnitude is so huge that you've got to take it seriously. 0.05 times a multiple trillion dollar cost is a very big number. And that's the issue is that no one can tell you for certain when it will happen, if it will happen. But the scale of the impact is so large, you've got to take it seriously. Listen, Chris, your book is fascinating. We wanted to go out of our way and make sure that some of our very loyal listeners get to read it. And we want to offer the first 100 to go to the podcast store. We're going to put this uh, interview in the OK Computer podcast feed. If you go and you follow that feed and leave a review for the podcast and screenshot it, send it to contact at riskreversal.com. You guys know the drill. Send to Amanda, and we are going to send you a free copy of Chris's book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. So we hope you guys enjoy that. Chris, thanks a lot for being on the pod. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.